Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for this focus on the Research Journal. Right now, every scientist in the world is drafting a manuscript. It's in labs everywhere that progress is made in the research. It's in journals everywhere that progress is made in the research. The Research Journal is the venue for scientists, because the research article is the genre for scientists. The next questions, and the ensuing attempts at answers, never appear in books. Journals are the places. Scientific research progresses toward scientific knowledge. And to make a journal, it takes at least five. The executives, the editors, the reviewers, the readers, and of course the authors. And it is these same five who make the interview guests here at Focus on the Research Journal. This is the talk that makes known the knowledge of science. Today's guest is Christoph Bernard, who is Director of Research at INSERM and Editor-in-Chief of eNeuro. eNeuro is an open-access journal for the Society of Neuroscience, a professional society for physicians and basic scientists whose research is focused on the study of the brain and the nervous system. eNeuro was launched in 2014 and has, since inception, been an open-access, multidisciplinary venue for high-quality papers that increase our understanding of the nervous system. The journal covers these broad areas of the neuroscience field, cognition and behavior, development, disorders of the nervous system, integrative systems, neuronal excitability, novel tools and methods, sensory and motor systems. E-Neuro is, of course, home to original research, but the editors also encourage reports on negative results, on replication studies, and on animal models and computational modeling studies of any length. Alongside reviews, method papers, commentaries, opinions, here in E-Neuro, the community of neuroscientists read new and sometimes controversial findings, but always findings that are important, important as judged in consensus by the authors, the reviewers, and the editors. Because eNeuro does submission not just effectively, not just efficiently, but also fairly. The journal uses a double-blind review process to cut down on implicit bias, and eNeuro allows reviewers and editors to enter into consultation over what authors should do to improve a submission. This is constructive. This is consensus building. This is something that speeds valuable papers to publication by limiting requests for extraneous experiments. eNeuro calls this consultation and synthesis. Authors call it good publishing. So let's begin the conversation. Christoph Bernard and eNeuro. Christoph, welcome to Scholarly Communication. Well, thank you very much, uh, Daniel, for uh, allowing this to happen and giving me a uh, the opportunity to uh, speak of my second most uh, favorite subject after uh, science itself, uh, the journal. But 
based on what you said, we can stop here and I, I can go back to work. <laughs> you summarized everything. <laughs> well, let's see if we can maybe uncover a stone or two that I probably left turned. Um, after science being uh, your most interesting and most important endeavor, you say that it is um, the publishing end, e-neuro, that, is, that, that comes in second place. And one of the things that I've and people also in the area of, of um, English for academic purposes and, and writing studies and so on have more or less seen as, um, let's say, fact but I'm very willing to hear what you have to say about it, is that there really is a continuous line between the two. There's the research on the one end, sure, and the publication tends to be an afterward event, but to draw a strict line between publication and actual research, is, is that something that you find easy for yourself to do or that you that you are able to manage inside your head? Well, th- that is an excellent question. In, in fact, what I uh, am saying when I speak about this topic is that uh, and you said it, science, it's everything. It's not only, not only scientists doing work at the bench. Uh, without evaluation of one's work by peers, uh, our science is worth nothing. If it's not communicated to others, it's also worth nothing because science cannot make progress being isolated in one lab. So science overall with a big S relies on everything, doing the science itself, evaluating the quality of the science, publishing uh, the science. So it's all linked. There is no real barrier between uh, these different topics. And for our society journals, which is a specific topic we could address as opposed to uh, uh, publishing venues that are there for profit, uh, society journals are run by scientists, which means that uh, for us, uh, I'm a scientist, well, I try to be, uh, there is no discontinuity between my work as a scientist and what I'm doing as a reviewer or as an editor. It's all part of the same big uh, science work. And society journals is a very important topic. And, and, and since you've brought it up, I would like to go into that right away. The Could you maybe briefly describe uh, for the listeners uh, the sort of editorship that um, eNeuro has? Being a society journal and being, as you say, run by scientists, let's say editors who have a day job, if you like. <laughs> yes. So... Um... Society journals, they are run by scientific societies, which uh, means that they are um, most of the time run uh, by scientists themselves. So for the Society for Neuroscience, but I know many other societies which work the same way, um, the two journals that we have at Society for Neuroscience, Journal of Neuroscience and Ineuro, the editor-in-chief uh, is a, an active scientist. All the reviewing editors are active scientists. The reviewers are active scientists, etc. So uh, we all uh, scientists, and that's I think the best way to handle science. It's uh, handled by peers at all stages. Uh, the difference with the for-profit journals uh, like uh, Nature Group or uh, Cell Press is that they are not run by uh, active scientists. Uh, this is to make money. That's their raison d'être. Uh, they are not here for anything else. So they are run uh, differently. Uh, 
one that is apart from the others two in fact uh, is a science group because this is the uh, american association for the advancement of science which is a non-profit organization and there is pnas the proceeding of the national academy of science but the two heavyweights cell press and uh, nature group and Xavier, uh, of course uh, they're all for profit so that's uh, a major difference uh, i think that uh, you can rely more being handled by professional uh, scientists rather than professional editors who sometimes and most of the time don't really know the field uh, or your field when you send them a paper. This is really interesting because it brings us right into the what I would call the core of what this focus on the research journal is all about. It's about who is editing the manuscripts and what are they looking for? Now, you've just very uh, crystal clear made the picture of the science uh, societies on the one end and the for-profits on the other. The for-profits with their, let's say, professional or semi-professional editors and the science societies having people who clearly are drawn to the publication process but are at heart scientists. I wonder if you could imagine what it is. Well, I mean, you know what you see when you see a manuscript, but I wonder if you could perhaps, in a sense, contrast that with what maybe somebody at one of these for-profits, Nature Group or Cell Press, is seeing when they see a manuscript. Ah, okay. So I, I cannot speak for the uh, for-profit um, uh, journals um, because they may have an agenda that we don't have. Uh, for in Europe, for uh, so this journal, uh, we don't select topics. Now, what I uh, tell my reviewing editors is that anything that is helpful to the community should be published. So, for example, there is a major difference uh, with the for-profit journal. Now. The for-profit journals, they are after uh, the highest impact factor because, unfortunately, this is what is used in many committees. So they want high-profile papers, papers that will be cited or talked in the media. So they do everything they can to get that kind of paper and to publish them. Now, the impact factor relies on the number of citations. But at Inuro, we are uh, just focused on what is good important for the community. Now, if I publish a negative result paper, so you have an hypothesis, turns out that it's leading nowhere. Well, instead of having several other labs testing the same hypothesis and spending money for nothing and time of PhD students and postdoc uh, for nothing, it's important to have it published. But because it's a negative result, this will never be cited or really not much, which means that if you believe in impact factor, your impact factor will go down because it's based on the number of citations. So I don't care about that thing uh, at Inuro. What I care about is having something that helps the community. That's the whole philosophy. So we are not filtering uh, anything. The reviewing editors and the reviewers have to assess whether the message is important for other scientists. And if it is, it belongs to the journal. You just mentioned they're reviewing editors and the reviewers. And since a society, as you've also made very clear, is 
scientists who are also working um, in in research as yourself being a, a director of research. Um, I wonder how often there is the chance for editorial acceptance um, because if, again, we contrast with the uh, for-profit journals, it's going to be seldom, I would think, that a paper hasn't doesn't have to go out for review. And yet I would imagine in a specialty field journal of your own, like your own e-neuro, that uh, this would be a possibility, wouldn't it? To publish without review? Is that your question? Uh, yeah, uh, there's a long way of asking that. But I mean, review, of course, through the editors who know. Okay, so this may happen uh, at Inure that a paper uh, in specific circumstances could be accepted directly by the reviewing editor without further review. This is really rare. Usually, uh, we go through the, the whole review process. I see. Okay, so it, it still is, even with the expertise on, on the editorial board, very necessary to be seeking outside um, experts on on questions of methods maybe or or suitability of results and interpretations well in fact your question is extremely valid and really interesting we never th uh, thought it that way so uh, you have to understand uh something oh okay so can i can i tell my personal story because i guess that for many people uh, they don't understand how you end up like being an editor in chief or a reviewing editor. Maybe that if you I... just uh, you just asked the best question of the interview. Yes, do please continue. <laughs> okay, so uh, I'm going to tell you m my story because this I think is happening to everyone uh, sitting in in my position at whichever level. So uh, of course I started as a, a young PI and I started to uh, review papers and uh, for several journals, including uh, the Journal of Neuroscience. So I was reviewing uh, other people's work because I thought that it's a just return to the community. When I send my own papers to journals, they are being reviewed by my peers and I have to do the same job. I have to, to return and give some of my time to evaluate the science of others. It's only fair, okay? So I started to do that. Uh, it turns out that uh, at General Neuroscience, uh, they were reviewing editors, and I will explain what a reviewing editor is, uh, was sending me more and more papers because they were liking my reviews. So I was getting uh, a lot of papers to review um, every month. And my reviews were evaluated quite well and I was getting enough. I was fast in answering uh, the, the, the review process. And at some point, uh, the uh, editor-in-chief of uh, the journal, John Mansell at that time, uh, asked me to become a reviewing editor. All right. So reviewing a paper, I knew. I had learned, and I knew what it meant. Reviewing editor, for me, it was someone above my head sending me continuously papers to review. I had no idea what it meant. And I said, well, why not? Let's get to the higher level and see how it's done because it's an important job for the community. So I started to become a reviewing editor. So what it is, uh, at General Neuroscience, uh, you are receiving like a lot of papers uh, every week. 
what I had to do was to select the reviewers, the job that I was doing before, to review the paper and help me make a final decision. So usually we ask two scientists to review the paper. And when we receive as a reviewing editor the two reviews or three, then we make a decision uh, to uh, accept, reject, or uh, ask for a revision. So to address your question, at that point, when you are a reviewing editor and you receive many, many papers per week, there's no way that you can act at the same time as a reviewer uh, for the paper uh, because you have to spend a lot of time uh, to uh, look in detail at the paper and make a decision to accept it. That would be impractical, except if the reviewing editor does not get too many papers. So the way the system is built right now makes this impracticable. But in theory, to accelerate the process, a reviewing editor, that, but that would be only one voice, uh, could make an informed decision if this reviewing editor is specialized in the field uh, of the paper, uh, related to the paper. We think that, to be fair to the authors, we need several voices. This is why we ask two reviewers and not uh, one. So it's a way to uh, kind of mitigate uh, the human factor. Sometimes you're uh, sad or unhappy or in a bad mood and uh, you destroy a paper for no reason. That happens. This is a human factor. Or you're so happy that you accept anything. Uh, it also happens. Uh, so we try to mitigate that by having uh, several voices. Uh, to give uh, the authors. So that's how I became a reviewing editor. And I discovered that it was a totally different way to uh, handle uh, science in terms of uh, policy. Um, what I did later for uh, science, because I was also a reviewing editor for science, was even more difficult uh, because I was getting a lot of papers and I had only to decide whether it was worth sending out for review. Uh, that specific uh, process, uh, it's specific to science. Um, so bottom line is, yes, to answer your question, it's possible it could accelerate publication, but it could be sometimes, uh, it could be unfair uh, to the authors. Yeah. And, that's that's, and, a, that's a, yeah, sorry, go, um, go on. <laughs> I just want to finish uh, the story. And then, um, so I was a reviewing editor at that time. I know I was doing this job um, and I was happy with it. It, was, it gives you a wide perspective of the field because you get uh, papers way outside your expertise. When I was a reviewer, it was within my expertise. But when you're a reviewing editor, it's uh, outside uh, your expertise uh, usually. And at the same time, I was really frustrated by the way I was handled by most journals, including society journals, uh, by unfair treatment and so on. And so when uh, the Society for Neuroscience decided to launch an open access journal uh, online, I decided uh, to run for, uh, to be the editor-in-chief. Why? Because this is a very rare an exceptional circumstance when you can do what you want. So I started it from scratch. I proposed uh, a way to do the journal 
And the way I imagine the journal is the way I would be pleased as an author. I, I knew about the problems of the publication process. And this is a very rare occasion in one's life when you create something from scratch. So this is what I tried to do, to, to try to construct something that would satisfy everyone. This is rare because most of the time you end up being an editor-in-chief of a journal that has been existing for uh, sometimes decades or more than a century for some. And it's like a super tanker that you cannot maneuver easily. Inuro was new and I could maneuver it as I wanted it. So that gives you an idea of how you go from one level to uh, to the next. And it's a, a, a fascinating story and, and a story I think that, yes, indeed, very few of my listeners will have known. And uh, I'd, I'd like to, in, in, in just a moment or two, get to the journal that you've helped design, the review process that you've helped design, because there are, as you make very clear, things about e-neuro that are done, things at e-neuro that are done differently. Um, just though briefly to follow up on this uh, review work that you did at Science or the reviewing editorship that you've held or your time as a reviewer itself, it's very interesting what you say during the reviewer uh, review editing period that um, suddenly you had a broader perspective. You know, the horizon opened up a bit because you weren't just being asked on things that, you know, were in your lab itself. Um, this is something that I've heard from other also professional editors, people who have now left research and they just love the the scope of what it is that they're reading, covering all different kinds of areas. I wonder if you could just briefly for us uh, contrast your time as a reviewer and your time as an editorial reviewer from the science perspective. Uh, this is really different. Um, in fact, I like more the uh, editing job than the, the reviewer job in terms of knowledge that I gain. Uh, if it's in my field, uh, in many instances, I already know stuff that I've seen at conferences or on posters. But uh, when I'm doing a job as a reviewing editor, then I read things that I would not have read otherwise. And that really opens my mind. Uh, it's fantastic experience as well. And this gets us uh, to uh, a perennial topic here on scholarly communication, the writing. <laughs> when you are the reviewing editor and when you're dealing with subject matter that is a step, maybe 10 steps, I don't know how many steps outside your specific area of specialty, um, what is it about the writing that either works or doesn't work for you? What is it that in a manuscript that you're looking at says, aha, this is also relevant to what I'm doing, or what is it about a manuscript that just simply confuses you because you can't make sense of it? Well, that's uh, what you learn uh, in the end. The, the, uh, the logic of science is common to uh, most fields. So even if you're not specialized in a specific area, you understand quickly the logic that is behind the scientific logic and the importance. I read uh, many papers outside my field and I thought, oh, but that's good applying to mine and that's a brilliant idea. I could transfer that kind of knowledge to my own field. That happened uh, in many instances. Now, when you read something, uh, you, 
I don't know. It's it's becoming natural. It makes sense. Uh, and if it does not make sense, you will react to it, even if you don't know the field. Uh, you learn uh, how to recognize that. I don't know how to explain this. It's a self-taught process. Mm-hmm. The, okay. So yeah, yeah. So you just uh, sort of, it, but I wonder if if you're if you're teaching yourself this, how closely this has to do with your ability as your career advances to write better your science and to understand more of more other people's science. Uh, to put it more simply, uh, how is it that you're able? Um, to teach yourself something that no one has ever really shown you. How is it that that occurs? I, I, I'm suggesting that it occurs through a lot of the writing that you do, translating from the bench, from the results, from the data into a paper, the things that matter and your particular studying, noticing how other people do it. But, but, but you have the experience. This is, I'm just floating an idea here. I mean, how, how, would, you, how would you accept that? Oh, I learn by reading uh, others' work constantly, and uh, and th this is extremely helpful. In fact, um, what a, a good scientist is uh, a scientist with an, an open mind. Uh, if you have an open mind and you accept what is coming from the outside, even if it's not done the way you do uh, yourself science, that's uh, how you learn, and. Uh, Sometimes when you're working in your own field, you have like uh, blinders and uh, you're so focused on what you're doing that you fail to uh, question what uh, you are doing. And this occurred to me when I was reviewing papers or handling papers as a reviewing editor or even as an editor-in-chief that I discovered stuff that uh, um, made a red flag appear for my own research and question what I was doing. So mm -hmm. this type of work uh, is also really important for your own research. Uh, it, it's not like a, a loss of time and you do it because you have to do it for the community. It's also very helpful uh, to you. And in fact, what I tell uh, uh, students all the time uh, is to, uh, for example, at SFN, at Society for Neuroscience, there is a mentorship program to uh, teach young people how to review a paper. That's a different topic. Nobody uh, is teaching how to review a paper. That's a very important thing. So we teach these young uh, scientists how to review a paper. And then once they have gone through that, they uh, enter the... Um, uh, the list of reviewers that we can use at both journals. And I tell them this is extremely important to do because by reading others' work and commenting on others' work, you will learn to do better science for yourself. And this has to do with the fact that uh, you're removing some of those blinders that you talked about before when you're deep inside your own area of study and when you're getting input from perhaps other areas or, re or even just other scientists working in your same area. Um, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine also, though, it's a 
for lack of a better word, a sort of linguistic exercise as well, isn't it? It's it's honing your reading and doesn't necessarily, when you turn that into the review, your writing skills, which um, to return back to some of our first comments, it seems so basic to the scientific project. Yes, it, it's uh, mutually beneficial. So there is only gain in this uh, experience. You don't lose. Of course, you, you're going to lose time, but there is so much gain uh, that you can get that uh, it's all positive in the end. I wonder why it is that um, institutes aren't um, applying more resources to that sort of teaching um, in, in the mentorship programs, as you say, where you know the review is held up as a learning model as well or a learning exercise. Uh, does, does anything occur to you why that might not be recognized for, its val- uh, for the value that it has? Well, as I mentioned at the beginning, and uh, you, you mentioned it yourself, the, the, the science is everything. But in many instances, for many people, science is only bench uh, work. So this is what you do. And then you the, the publishing part is just, <clears throat> okay, something that others do. Um, even the review process, it's not fully integrated uh, into the work that we have to do as scientists. Uh, there should not be a barrier between doing science and reviewing science. It should be the same world and uh, a continuity between these. Now, in institutions, <clears throat> sorry, they are uh, putting all uh, they can do to teach people how to do science. But doing science also is knowing how to review a paper. Uh, you may be aware, maybe others have commented on that, there is a crisis uh, for the review process. Many people have commented about being mistreated by uh, reviewers. Um, and there are many reasons uh, for that. But the main reason is that we are not taught how to review a paper. And this is frustrating because when you are an author and you send a paper and you receive uh, the comments which are really aggressive and do not make sense uh, and not helpful, then you start to distrust the system. That's how I was reacting at some point uh, in my career. And I'm still being frustrated when I get rejected for uh, no reason. So. These things need to be taught. Why? Because who are the reviewers? Ourselves. All of us at early stages of our career, we said, well, the system is crap. We don't get good reviews. Uh, Who does uh, that kind of uh, reviewing? But later, when we become reviewers, we do the same thing. So if we are taught from uh, the beginning how to properly review a paper and be helpful to authors and not destructive, that would solve many problems. That's a wonderful point and, and, and clearly reasoned and something that I think anybody in, in, in my area of work who is trying to help um, scientists write better would, would completely underline and emphasize and highlight as, as, as a very important point to be made. And I, I, I wonder if we also don't uh, learn from that, that very many Excellent scientists are out there who, as you say, are capable of learning so much on their own. Things that are essential to their work are sometimes self-taught. As you say, 
broadening their view beyond their uh, particular area of research and understanding the logic of other people's work. But it may also be that there are, A, unnecessary exertions involved in that sort of thing. And with the proper sorts of courses or um, education, that, that, that process could be sped along. And there may even be, B, sometimes limitations to what can be self-taught, as you are perhaps uh, very well illustrating here in the case of, of uh, reviews and the sorts of reviews that get written. I would almost also add to it uh, the other end of it, not just the reviews, but the manuscripts being reviewed. What, what, what place would you see in research education, the education on how to research and in the field of neuroscience, let's take our example of today, that writing instruction should play? Well, uh, now you're getting to my favorite uh, subject. Uh, education is the key to everything. Uh, there's, I mean, nobody questions the fact that uh, to do good science, uh, you have to be taught how to do it, uh, how to learn to make good, even simple things like statistics, do uh, appropriate statistics and not to say uh, something stupid. I mean, not everybody understand that this is an absolute necessity. But it's not only that, as I said, everything uh, should be taught at the earliest stage as possible, not focused purely on science, but everything that is around science and can be ethics. It's not only uh, uh, reviewing papers. It's learning science with all its components. But this is not a priority in most universities, at least those I know. And uh, what is a bit dispiriting for me is that I have like a kind of lot of experience uh, as a reviewer, reviewing editor and editor-in-chief. And I propose my, uh, the, the doctoral school of my university, you know, I, I can provide this uh, course for free, of course, because we are not paid for teaching uh, and spend time to explain students what it is. And uh, I said that twice already, and I never got a message from the university saying, oh yes, sure. That could be interesting for the students. Well, that's 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 uh, really almost well, not almost. That is tragic. I mean, that that is one of the motivations of this focus on my podcast of the research journal to make transparent for all of the people involved in the scientific process what is going on to get from initial results and data points all the way down to the paper that other people are citing. And your contribution that you're offering there would be an enormous step in that direction, as far as I can see. Yes, but, uh, you know, maybe uh, uh, they're not ready or they, I don't know. I don't know how to explain that. So what I do when I, when I go abroad uh, to uh, give seminars, when I invite it somewhere, I always propose uh, to... Um, uh, to have an informal discussion with the young PIs and PhD and postdocs. Uh, and it's called like everything you ever wanted to know about publishing a paper without uh, daring to ask. So, well, like the quote of Woody Allen's movie. Uh, and uh, there are more people to these informal sessions without slides just sitting uh, together. There are more people to my actual scientific talk. <laughs> so I know that... Uh, Young people, young PIs, they want to know about these things. Um, 
but and they all tell me that this should be taught officially by uh, with the, with a specific course uh, in university. Well, that, that's that's what we're here for today. <laughs> we're, we're here for your everything that you wanted to know about publishing and science, but had been afraid or never dared to ask. Um, what would be some of the, let's say, recurrent uh, questions that come your way? What are some of the themes that just you see resurfacing again and again in, in these informal talks? Well, the, the, the behavior of reviewers. Uh, when uh, you get your review uh, reviews back, your paper is rejected. For example, uh, this is a classical case. One reviewer is happy and one reviewer is unhappy. It's negative and one positive. And invariably, the reviewing editor rejects the manuscript, follows the uh, negative reviewer. Okay, and then uh, there is nothing you can do. Uh, so there are, that's one of the main reasons why I applied to uh, make uh, Inuro, because I used a uh, model system that had been introduced before Inuro by eLife, this consultation process. Now, with the synthesis and the consultation, you solve everything. Uh, this means that the message that is transmitted to the authors is one voice. There cannot be a positive and a negative view. Before the report is sent to the authors, the reviewing editor and the reviewers talk to each other and decide about, among themselves, about the final decision. And the role of the reviewing editor at Inuro is to be sure that everything is factual, that the reviewers and the reviewing editor agree about what is going to be transmitted, what is going to be asked uh, to the authors in terms of uh, additional experiments to do. So everything must be consensual. And in the end, the, uh, the authors receive one voice. It's can, it cannot be discordant. And if the paper is rejected, it's with facts, not like vague statements. So that's why uh, at Inuro, for example, last year, uh, I had one appeal. And that's it. So one author wasn't happy, and it was not justified to have been rejected. So when authors are rejected, they know why. Now, if you take any journal and ask them how many appeals they receive per week, it's a lot. So the system that we have, that I copied from uh, eLife and modified it, is the solution. And the authors, even if they are rejected, they say, okay, well, makes sense. Too bad. And that's easy to do. And that's also something that you're noticing. Well, clearly the numbers speak for themselves. Uh, that that scientists, authors are uh, just willing to accept because it, it, it makes sense. I mean, they understand what you're saying to them. I mean, that's probably, you, you, you used the word frustrated earlier, also with your own work. I mean... A scientist is going to be somebody who typically looks for the facts, the logic of the argument, and so on and so forth. I mean, this is the self-taught bit, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, if you're, if you're getting reviews that don't follow that uh, protocol, then, uh, well, naturally, you're going to feel frustrated, aren't you? Yes. So maybe I'm, uh, the, I have the gold medal, Olympic gold medal of all times, of the best review ever. 
it was for the uh, paper that I uh, sent to science. So two, I had three reviewers. Two reviewers were uh, discussing a lot, and it was very helpful. And uh, they, were, they didn't say no openly, at least in the review. And the third one, I cite verbatim the review of the third reviewer. It's incredible if it's true. Full stop. <laughs> now, what do you make of that? <laughs> it's incredible if it's true. That, be that belongs in a novel. That really belongs in a novel. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, I mean, that's the best example I can think of to of the opposite of what should be done. Okay. So this is what I tried to solve uh, with the, with the neuro and it, and it works. I mean, the, and also there is one important aspect uh, when you are uh, frustrated as an author and that comes over and over again. When I discuss with people about that, they tell me, but why do they say that to me? What did I do? Is that my enemy? That, and uh, because you have sometimes really nasty comments, and um, I tell them that one reason reviewers do that it's because they are not accountable for what they write. So they they think they can write anything because it's anonymous, right? So you receive the reviews and you don't know who wrote that kind of review. Uh, now I can tell you something. Uh, Again, thanks to the uh, system that uh, was introduced by eLife, uh, when the reviewers send back their reviews and the reviewing editor discuss with them, they are not anonymous anymore. At least the three of them, they know each other's names. And that is changing everything uh, because they start to mellow down if they've been too harsh and they start to discuss if there is some discrepancy. And the job of the reviewing editor at Inuro is to give a message that is useful to the authors, removing any unnecessary statements or nasty statements. So that's why also the, the, the authors are uh, um, satisfied. If you make everyone accountable in the chain of decision, including the editor-in-chief, then you start to get to improve the system, at least to improve it. And, and it seems quite. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, no, no, please, please. And I think that's what we should tend to uh, if we really want to uh, improve uh, this aspect would be to systematically publish the names of the reviewers and the reviewing editor to make them accountable. I, I, I see entirely the logic behind that. And, and what I also notice is that in this, uh, we've come upon the topic anyway, although we were, <laughs> we were at your, uh, what you always wanted to know and so on, but uh, the topic of what is unique Daniel? about the uh, neuro um, reviewing process, what I see in this is indeed the accountability, the um, fact that they're not anonymous anymore, but it would be it just seems so odd to me that the reviewing process out of all the stages of research in science is the one that isn't collaborative. If you think where else in the entire run from thinking up the hypothesis all the way through the, the lab group meetings and down, in, and down into the um, writing of the manuscript and, and submitting it, 
how is it that, I mean, where is the moment where there's not collaborative work going on? And yet when it comes to the reviewing process itself, uh, one person's voice without a name, one review, and as you say, this often entirely confusing situation of the positive and the negative, and then that that decides it. Yes. So in fact, you touch a very, again, a very, very important point. Um, there are some discussions that have been going on for quite a while now to change the uh, the review process. Uh, now, if you look at the world of physics, uh, they have been publishing their papers on uh, an archive system for quite a while now. And uh, what they do is review each other. So you post, uh, it's of course before publication, but you post uh, your paper on an archive system and uh, people start to comment on your paper and it's public and you see the discussion and that helps you as an author to improve stuff. They say, oh, you should do this and that and be careful with this, whatever. And once the the paper has reached a certain level, even editors uh, may accept the paper without further uh, review because it has gone through a review process by your own community already. Okay, so this is a specific case in physics where uh, it mostly rely on mathematics and it's quite easy to establish whether it's true or false. maybe less easy when it uh, it is biology. But that could be a possibility. Why not having uh, papers on an archive? For example, before sending uh, my papers to a journal, they are on bioarchive, uh, ready to be read by uh, anybody. But we could try to adopt the same system. Uh, and you publish the paper on the bioarchive, and other scientists come and comment on it and say, well, this is not really well done. You should do this and this, or should add this experiment to reinforce your point. So bioarchive allows you to post uh, reviews on the paper that is published, but nobody is using it. But the possibility exists. That could be a solution. Uh, As you said, uh, science is a job that involves many people. Uh, It's a community thing. But the review process could be also a community thing. Yeah, and it would seem that there's an opportunity that's being missed there because, um, again, I, I just sort of repeat the fact that it, it sticks out as to me as, as being the one moment in the entire process where uh, you know collaboration isn't front and foremost amongst what people are doing, um, the reviewing process. Um, to get also a bit more back to eNeuro itself and, and its character, um, there's lots of uh, wonderful descriptions of what goes on at the uh, Neuro and, and what eNeuro wants and aims to do on the webpage. One really caught my eye, and I wonder if you could uh, comment on that for me. Um, a William Stacy, MD, who was, is an author, a former author of eNeuro, um, he writes or spoke on, on one of the uh, videos there, that eNeuro welcomes research that's out of the box, whether it be confirmatory results or methods or negative results or methods, or simply a style of paper that's a little bit different. And this is what I find quite interesting, what he goes on to say. There's a certain cadence that different journals have. There's a certain research that tends to be in one journal versus another. 
And a lot of the times, if you've done something that's a little bit different, it's hard to find a place to put your research. And eNeuro welcomes that type of research. So, I mean, I suppose there's a double question coming your way. I mean, how would you characterize uh, eNeuro? And, and, and is this a fair assessment? And, and secondly, in a world where people are very much looking, let's say, at PubMed, a list of search results that are somewhat uh, decoupled from their original journals, how much does a journalist's character or voice uh, matter in today's world of research? Ah, that's a, that's a fascinating question. Uh, so if you look at the uh, top journals of uh, nature, science, uh, cell press, it's true that, and in fact, uh, you can just read in history, you tend to get the same types of papers over and over again during a certain period of time uh, because of uh, the fashion. Uh, it was true when uh, people started to do uh, knockouts animals. So they appeared uh, in the big journals and some specialized in more aspects than others. Uh, until now, uh, if you look at COVID, uh, some uh, big journals specialize in uh, COVID papers and not others. And I guess it depends on the professional editor uh, who's handling that kind of thing, or it, it is maybe a decision from the editor-in-chief to favor one topic versus another. And uh, you tend to, uh, uh, for these types of journals, always to generate the same kind of thing. There is another thing that uh, is also true, is that you self-perpetuate yourself. Uh, for example, you will find in science uh, papers always on the same topics that you will never find in nature. And the reverse is true. Why? Because people are going to read the same papers in science. So they will say, oh, I'm going to send it to science because it's been published already there. The editor is getting familiar with the topic. And it's the same uh, reviewers that are used all over. And it creates a vicious circle where it's always the same kind of topic that is published. And it can uh, generate dogma. But that's another issue. Now, I, in Euro, we, what I want is to publish anything that is important, as I said, uh, to the community, being be it dogmatic or anti-dogmatic. If you want to question uh, something, then uh, you can. For example, we published today a commentary from uh, Carl Herrup on the fallacies in the uh, Alzheimer's disease field, which is really interesting because uh, he questions in this commentary the way Alzheimer uh, research has been done so far. So yes, we welcome all types uh, of papers, things that even question what we do uh, now or the way we do it. That's why we have many things about uh, uh, statistics, how to do uh, statistics properly, properly, and I launched a series that is called experimental bias. There are things that we take for granted when we do an experiment, but there is a bias that sometimes we know nothing about, that we've been we've not been taught uh, about. So we have this series that is quite successful in the journal, uh, which is called experimental bias, where we discuss problems linked 
uh, with the techniques that many people are using and not knowing the drawbacks. That's great. Um, another uh, feature of the journal is also the research highlights, uh, the article type research highlights. Uh, could you maybe also give us a brief look into uh, what that is there for? So the research highlights, uh, uh, we are going to uh, start again uh, these. So there's a paper that has been published uh, in the journal, in Inuro, and we want to highlight uh, more particularly this uh, story because it's important in terms of education or uh, scientific content or the ideas that are behind. And the way we do it now is um, usually we start with the reviewing editor of the of, of the paper, so the, the reviewing editor who handled uh, this paper. And if they have a postdoc or PhD student who wants to make a kind of uh, very short uh, journal club or talk about uh, this paper and to put it into perspective and why it is important for the community to know about this result, then they can write this and we publish uh, this uh, research highlight. It's really beneficial for uh, the young uh, scientists like PhD students and postdocs because it teaches, us, uh, teaches them to uh, make a synthesis about uh, what has been done and, uh, it's, in the, and it's published. Uh, it's uh, uh, for free, and uh, that's a very good exercise for them. And that's a way also to highlight a particular field or a research paper. So again, and, and as I said, everything my, we do uh, is yes, to the benefit of the community. And I see in your, of course, as a vehicle for a, a communicating science, but also as an educational tool. As you have figured out, education for me is uh, one major yes, uh, topic. So in your is also that kind of vehicle, educational. Yes, yes. Yeah, indeed. It, it, that, and that comes uh, through clearly. Uh, experimental bias uh, in and of itself is, is a rarity among journals, um, a series of that sort. Uh, the questions that people don't even know they need to ask of uh, their statistical methods and so on. But also this research highlights um, article. I find wonderful because of just the point you make there, that PhDs and postdocs are given the opportunity to uh, provide a synthesis of their work, which for an early career researcher or researcher who's just budding, let's say, uh, just finishing up their PhD, this is not always easy. It's something that I also notice in my writing courses where the details are fine, but pulling them all together, creating what some people call a narrative, it's not a word I'm very happy about, but basically creating a story, what this means, where's the significance, or to use the word that um, you've, you've, you've cited a few times now, what, what's the importance now for the community? Because I think that very many early career researchers haven't quite understood the place of the community in their work yet. Um, and that's where the, the skill of writing comes in, because through the communication of it, you start to understand not just what you're doing, but whom you're doing it among. Yes, exactly. The, for me, the, the most important people in the world <laughs> are the young ones. Mm, yeah, yeah. So, I, mm -hmm. Yeah, go ahead. Um, 
no, I, I don't want to interrupt if, if, if you wanted to add to that. That, that would be very interesting. No, that, because it's also linked to uh, the other types of papers that uh, we are publishing. So, the, uh, so we have, uh, of course, the negative studies. And I think it's absolutely crucial for uh, also young people because sometimes a PI has an hypothesis, okay, and uh, you have your uh, PhD student working uh, on this. And in the end, the hypothesis uh, is wrong, okay? But the PhD student has worked maybe a year or two uh, with no results. And sometimes you have to rush to get another project so that there are publications. But a negative study is nearly as important as a positive study. And it's also a way to acknowledge the work uh, that has been done by the PhD student or the postdoc, even if it led nowhere. Now, if you look at the recommendations of NIH, they say negative studies must be published because they see it, uh, some uh, projects which are similar, but coming from different labs, testing the same hypothesis. So they found research several times uh, to test the same hypothesis. And uh, it's known already that uh, it's, well, it's not known in the field, but it will uh, lead to, do, to nothing. That's the, that's what hypotheses are for. But if you publish negative studies, then the community knows and and that acknowledges the work done by the people who did it. It was not for nothing. You have like a product in the end. Yeah, it's not like all those uh, months that the PhD student was working on uh, those uh, results. He or she was doing nothing. I mean, always learning no science. Um, just because it doesn't come out in, in the flowery form that it's supposed to doesn't mean that it's not a plant, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. And a negative study is as important as a positive study. You, you mentioned the hypothesis quite often, and this is a word that um, and a concept that's not, let's say necessarily apparent in every uh, paper in biology. I wonder where you would stand on the idea of clearly stating the hypothesis in the introduction so that, um, you know, the entire design of the study makes sense from a theoretical point of view. Well, in most papers that I read in my field, uh, they have this in the introduction. So we reasoned that or we hypothesized that uh, in all my papers, uh, there is this. Uh, now, what is funny about this is that uh, when you do research, sometimes uh, it's done like, oh, okay, let's do that experiment and see what happens. So you had no hypothesis uh, beforehand. And I suspect that the vast majority of papers in, uh, in neuroscience, they are not truly hypothesis driven. The hypothesis is built afterwards, after you get the results to make sense of them. And you, it's constructed uh, the other way around. Uh, sometimes, yes, you start with the hypothesis and you go to the very end. But in many instances, it's the other way around. You, you start to make sense, uh, you try to make sense of your results, and then you build the hypothesis. So yeah, it's not that straightforward. But yes, in the introduction, uh, even if you did the experiment the other way around uh, and you uh, got the hypothesis at the very end, you should state it into the introduction. Mm -hmm. um, I would like to return just one last time to the, the review process. And uh, you had mentioned before that there is 
the possibility of revise and reject. I mean, acceptance is acceptance. There's not much to discuss there, I suppose. But um, on the revise, uh, that middle ground, I, it, part of the point of this focus on the research journal is, is also to make things transparent for authors. And you've done um, <laughs> in this past hour loads of work in that direction, I think, for very many um, potential authors. And I, I just wonder what you would say on the revision process or even after a rejection. What is it that needs to be foremost in the author's mind if they want to continue with that line of work, whether revising again or having been rejected? Well, the 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 the, the message that we uh, try to convey to the authors is uh, is always the same. We we try to be helpful, so we can reject the paper because there are too many weaknesses, but then we tell them this is weak, 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 and etc. But we have a specific thing. Uh, if that, so the reviewers uh, must decide whether for a revision, the authors need more than two, mon- two months of work. Okay. Now, if it's more than two months of work, the paper is automatically rejected with the possibility to resubmit. But we tell the authors, okay, look, um, there is still a lot of work to do. Now you decide. You do it, and uh, you can resubmit. But we don't promise anything. Why uh, did we decide for that kind of uh, procedure? Because in my experience with other journals, you get the reviews, and the reviewers tell you, "Well, you need to do this, this, and that, and this, this," and it takes you a year to do it. Okay. Then you go back to the journal and for some reason they decide, oh no, finally we are not going to accept it. This is even more frustrating because you spend a lot of energy and money and time uh, to complete that with no justification. Here we don't make any promise to the authors. If if it's more than two months work, it's automatically rejected with the possibility to resubmit, but that's the decision of the authors. uh, And that way we don't make any false promises to the authors. And that works. Yes, yeah, it's all very clear and and, and fair and and uh, very science based, as I can see. Um, again, from my uh, background, I'd be interested to know what sort of role does the writing itself perhaps play in that um, in a decision for revision or something like that. Uh, if if, for example, you see there um, very good findings, solid data, but uh, it's hard to read the messages uh, mixed up. And I'm not just talking about maybe somebody who isn't um, perhaps uh, using English as their first language. I'm talking about the problems that anyone faces when they write and the difficulties of putting that into prose that, you know, the wider community is going to understand. Oh, that's uh, in fa- that's a very uh, good question as well. Uh, this happened to us uh, at Inuro um, not so long ago. A paper that was potentially really good uh, with many great ideas, but not properly expressed. It was not English. It was just the logic, the structure. And so we told the author, well, this could be a great story, but it's very difficult to read for any uh, reader. So we encouraged the author to have it uh, checked by a professional um, because they, they can do that even they don't understand the full scientific content, they can work on the logic of the presentation. Uh, This is something that needs uh, to be learned also by uh, uh, young people, how to uh, properly write a paper and how to 
set uh, one's ideas. It's not it's natural for some people, but uh, it's a skill that needs to be acquired uh, over the years and needs to be taught. So yes, we tell the authors to uh, rewrite uh, the paper, and uh, it's I can tell you. Uh, even if it's not proper English, it's very difficult to detach oneself from the form as compared to uh, the content. Because when you have to spend so much time trying to make sense of what the authors has written uh, and only consider the science, it's very difficult as a reviewer. Right, right. And, 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 and that would be... I mean, of course, as you say, there's professional editors and so on, author services um, who can uh, even not questions of, of language, as, as, as we're both making clear here. It's not just about the English. It's about the logic. It's about the clarity of the sentences. Um, but I mean, really, any scientist is going to want to have their work in their own hands, aren't they? I mean, how, how likely is a scientist also then uh, to want to say, now, okay, well, I'm not so great at the statistics. I'll just sort of outsource that as well out. <laughs> so I'll have the paper a bit outsourced by the author's service. I'll have some uh, people who are outside my lab run the statistics. I mean, this isn't what you want to do, isn't it? I mean, the, the real way forward is for the authors to be capable and competent themselves in their own writing. Yes. So um, we try to teach uh, the the people in, uh, in our labs to uh, write papers and even to review papers. That's what I'm uh, uh, trying to do in, uh, uh, in my group, uh, to teach them that. Um, so it should be done. Uh, again, education is key. So if it were uh, part of what must be compulsory to learn when uh, you are uh, in the master uh, program or PhD program, that would solve many things, but it must start as early as possible. Well, Christoph, you've uh, been very generous with your time. I've, I've one last question that brings us sort of full circle. Um, you are a editor in chief of uh, the journal eNeuro. You are also a director of research at Inserm. Um, that means you're an author and an editor, and I suppose. My question is this, when you're working on your own manuscript, what sorts of things do you hear your editor self telling your author self? Ah, the problem is that I'm not schizophrenic enough. Um, so I, can ha I cannot have two personalities. I would love to be able to do that, to, to write uh, something and to have myself evaluated what I'm doing as a reviewing editor, but I cannot do that. Some people can do, can abstract themselves and uh, and evaluate. That would be extremely powerful and extremely helpful. So usually what I do is to have someone else uh, and check what I have written uh, and, uh, and then use that uh, to improve what I've been doing. But I cannot do it on, uh, on myself. So is it fair to say that the good scientist is a good editor or at least knows a good editor? <laughs> yes. Yes. But the, the thing is that, you know, a good scientist is not necessarily a good reviewer. And uh, the reverse is also true. Some That's people are interesting. Yeah. Some people are excellent reviewers 
not as good as scientists. And I know by experience that top scientists make extremely poor reviewers. That would seem to be recognized. Uh, that would seem to be reflected, excuse me, in uh, the publishing world, in the literary world, because there are some writers who are just terrible editors of their wonderful creative works, and there are some editors who um, Gordon Lish is one that comes to mind who couldn't write a novel that they would ever want to publish, but they have done some of the editing that has changed uh, the course of literature. So, <laughs> yes, yes, I mean, you need everyone in science. Okay, some people are very good scientists, and they are there to uh, produce excellent science with a small team. Others are not that good scientists, but they are made to uh, run big institutes, and they can be extremely good at uh, getting the, the the maximum from the the people in the institute, even if they are not very good scientists. As I said, science is a, a whole society. Uh, like uh, in the true sense of the term, with many aspects, and you need all aspects to work. So it's not only the, the scientists at, at the bench. That what I said at the beginning. It doesn't make any sense if it's the scientist at the bench by themselves. It's worth nothing without the rest, with the society part. So the review process, the people running the institute, uh, the administrative uh, people. Uh, helping with the grant. You need everyone. Well, thank you very much. Uh, that is uh, Christophe Bernal, Editor-in-Chief of eNeuro and Director of Research at INSERM. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Christophe. Goodbye. Goodbye. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye, and until next time here on Scholarly Communication.